Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, all the way from merry old England, Ed Condon. Ed, you are in England. Yes. Yes, I am. Oh, because you're, you're English, and there you are in England. It's convenient. I, yes. Fine. We'll skip over the whole I'm English conversation, but yes. What brings me... Nothing. Uh, nothing and everything. I... My wife and I have not been able to come back to the UK from whence we came um, for three years now. You know, we were we we ordinarily would go back at least once a year and often twice a year, but then then there was Rona tide, and um, for about eighteen months, you you couldn't either go to the UK or or as often you couldn't get back into the US from the UK. So we were unable to come visit then, and then obviously we had a we had a baby, so that that put the kibosh on on international travel for a little while after that. So it's been a while. So we're we're over here with our child. We are introducing her to to people to her own family. Because just for people who hear me say that you're English all the time, but don't actually know your origin story, Ed, you are American. You were born in the great state of Illinois. You lived for a little while in the suburbs of Chicago. Then, when you were about ten, your dad got a job on the London Stock Exchange and you and you moved to uh, London where you stayed until you were in your mid-20s and went to study canon law. Is that about right? That's about right. I, I you have, married an English girl. I did. I, I um, An English bird. Is that offensive to say that you married an English bird? Uh, bird is, sounds like a it, word that I've heard used to describe English women. It, it is the, the English analog to calling someone a chick. So whether or not that's pejorative or offensive depends really on, on how you feel about Okay, that. but I don't regard it as offensive. No, I, um, I think if you were to call my wife a, a London bird, she, she probably wouldn't get too offended. But I'm not going to find out. And um, so she, so your your parents have moved back to America, and most of your siblings live in America or in parts abroad. But your wife's family lives in um, England in on the west, in the west end of London. And because of COVID, you guys haven't been able to bring back your baby, who's about 18 months, to England since the baby was born. Is all of that about right? Uh, that that's that's. Close enough for narrative purposes and far enough that I'm not upset about you saying it on <laughs> the internet. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm here. I have um, I've just about got over jet lag now, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I'm enjoying beer being served at the proper temperature. Uh, it, is, it is nice. It is nice to be back in London, J.D. Um, there is one thing I have discovered um, that I, I find hard to, to deal with over here, having been away for so many years, and it is... Um, you can't get cream in your coffee in in the UK. Can you have any kind of creamer or just you have to have your coffee black or just It's not that you have to have it black. It's the, the, it's understood that you know, milk is usually the only thing on offer and that's just it throws the whole balance of the coffee off. You know, you're you know, if you like me you like the coffee reasonably strong but you want a good shot of cream in there, you know, to get the desired um mix right you usually have to put so much milk in that you've diluted the coffee and you've made the whole thing cold that that's been my only complaint that's the only thing that i'm having to reacclimatize to over here is um is the absence of cream as a as a steady offering for coffee but you can get around that you just have to start drinking beer much earlier in the morning and um I'm okay with it. And that. is that what they is that what they do? That's what they tend to do in Merry Old England? Uh, yes, JD. Everyone drinks beer with breakfast over here. It's very normal. My mother in law well, likes when a good you're hunting two pints for deer of stout in the, in the King's bank. Forest, you know, you have to you work up quite a thirst. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right, JD. That's um that's precisely what we're doing. Avoiding paying taxes to the sheriff, looking out for that little family of rabbits, all of the things that you, one must do. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
Ed, the fact that you're in England, and I'm very glad that you're there. How long will you be there? Uh, I'm going to, well, uh, this You'll will be, be there a month, except. <laughs> you keep preempting my own narrative. Um, yes, this will be, this will be home base for a month, but I will probably be going to Rome next week just because I'm close by see some friends, see some people, do some reporting. You never know what might happen. And, of course, um, in in two weeks' time... Uh, we have something very cool and exciting coming up, don't we? We are. We're going to do another live Wait, show. Wait, hold on. Before we say two weeks' time, would it be appropriate for us to say in a fortnight's time, given that you're, you know... Yes, that's fine. You can, if that'll make you happy, you can say in a fortnight's time, yes. In a fortnight's time, uh, we have another live show coming up. Tell the people. Uh, we are going to be in the great state of Texas. Uh, we are going to Dallas. And in fact, we're actually doing two live shows, which is really cool. Um, I'm, I'm going to do it. We're, do, we're going to do one live show on the 3rd? Friday the 3rd. Friday the 3rd of, uh, of uh, February. And then we're going to do another live show on uh, Saturday the 4th. And these live shows are very cool. We, have, we were invited to go down to Dallas by the University of Dallas, a Catholic university in and of Dallas um, to be a part of their uh, their kind of alumni weekend. So they, they basically are sponsoring two episodes of the show that we will do. One will be a live show that on Friday, February the 3rd, we will do at 4 p.m. in their, it's called the Rats Gallery. I think it's like their bar on campus of the University of Dallas. And then the next day, Saturday the 4th, what will our show be then? Uh, we're going to do a conversation with the president of the said University of Dallas. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the, you know, the the purpose and idea and everything else of a Catholic university. That's right. So it's going to be kind of an interview show that will be a bonus episode of this podcast in which we interview the president of the University of Dallas. And I have lots of surprises for you, our listening audience, and the president of the University of Dallas. But this is kind of a cool trip. This is sort of like a, this is a sort of in. We were invited. That this uh, what they do at the University of Dallas is. For reasons that I don't exactly know, but I once knew, um, the holiday of Groundhog's Day is a very big deal uh, at the University of Dallas. It's kind of their annual student bacchanal in as much as a Catholic college has a bacchanal. Uh, in as much as that Catholic college, I suppose, should say, has Bacchanal. And, uh, and so even though Groundhog Day will not be over the weekend, they've sort of, they sort of observe Groundhog Day on the weekend. And they have, an alumni, they have a lot of alumni things and events for students and a party that we're invited to uh, and, and all kinds of things. And, uh, and they've invited us to come to kind of uh, help them festive the festivities by doing a live show in their bar and then by doing this uh, interview show with their with the president of of the University of Dallas which is also open to the public uh, on the uh, on the 4th of uh, February and we'll have more details about it probably as we get closer that we can tell people about who live in the area is that right that is entirely correct and i'm i'm feeling i have what's the there there's probably a german word for this it's 14 characters long or something but what's the feeling of satisfaction you get when something that you thought would happen comes to be is there is there a word for that? Contentment is that what you're looking for? Well, I mean, I am content. No, a particular kind of contentment. The particular kind of, of contentment that, that you draw from feeling like something you you put out there that was going to happen does come to happen, and you know, it is because I, you know, I told you when we were discussing on the famous hat chat episodes that if we got cowboy hats, the opportunity to use them would present themselves, and now lo and behold, we're going to Texas, <laughs> and I. You know, I we're going to Texas. I, we're going to Texas, and I tell you this for free: next year at the USCCB, we're wearing Hawaiian shirts. Oh, there you have it. Just as there, future oh, wish casting, you, you know. Ed, here's a question that I have for you. I'm kind of previewing what we're going to talk about on the show, the live show down there. But Ed, do any of your exes live in Texas? Is this a pun? I no, I don't. No, know. it's a fa- 
piece of famous American. It's a part of the American music tradition. All my exes live in Texas. Texas is the place where I really love to. You don't know that song? No. Oh, well, well you've got to learn it by the time we get there. Okay. Um, that my, my Texas cultural knowledge is... <laughs> I, I it's not great. It's probably it's probably been badly formed by classic era western films. That that's probably I mean I I know the man who shot Liberty Valance, but that wasn't even set in Texas. You know what movie I watched recently? And by the way, if you're not the sort of banter type, we're talking we're bantering here. But you know what Texas movie I watched recently? Uh, uh, and I feel badly because I watched it on a plane and it was a little bit violent for a plane, but it was right there offered to me by United. Uh, was No Country for Old Men, which I believe is ba- takes place in Texas. Do you ever see that movie? Uh, yes. Yes. Intense. It is a very intense film. I, I can't say it's my favorite. You didn't care for it? It's not that I didn't care for it. It's a very well-made film. It's very well-written. I'm not, you know. It, that's the one with, like, Woody Harrelson has a bit part in it that's quite amusing, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm, no, yeah. I, I, it, it was a it well-made It was deeply film. nihilistic. Yeah, that's the thing, is I... <laughs> Look, the lesson of No Country for Old Men is that there's nothing good that one can believe in. It was deeply nihilistic. Yeah, and you get a lot of these. They, wasn't that one written by Cormac McCarthy? Uh, yeah, it's based upon a novel. Uh, it's, it's based on uh, based on the novel No Country for Old Men by by Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, he's pretty nihilistic. I mean, uh, look, I there are those films that have that sort of you know driving sense of unstoppable bad. That you know, in that case, is the the assassin who sort of killing everyone in his sight and sort of really, and it has that mm-hmm. nihilistic theme and again it's a very well made film i just you know the the crushing sense of impending doom i yeah i and can get all that at home movie. when i'm watching a film i want to be taken <laughs> out of myself i want you know i, I want if the fantasy it, i'm not going to ruin it for you but if you have seen it and you remember the ending i'll just say i i had hoped i had hoped that the end of the movie would be there would either be justice or conversion. Yeah, that's right. Justice or redemption. And there was neither. And uh, I'm sorry if I'm ruining the movie for you, but it came out in 2007. So come on. Um, you could watch it on a plane, for goodness sake. Uh, it came out in 2007. So I feel okay about this. I had hoped that at the end of the movie would either be justice or redemption. And there was neither. And that the, the, the entire meaning of the movie, I would argue, hinged upon the final scene in which this, as you say, assassin... Uh, who kind of kills everyone inside has to make one one sort of more decision about what he'll do. And I had hoped that the meaning of the movie would be in some way, uh, again, that either redemption is possible or justice is served. And, and, and in fact, it was neither, which was the depressingly nihilistic part about it. Do you know, did you watch that? You said you watched it on a plane. Did you watch it on the plane either to or from Rome when we were going for the funeral? I watched it on the plane on the way home from Rome when we were going to the funeral of Benedict the 16th. So there was no, there were no films I wanted to see on those flights. We were on the same flight. Yeah. They were, they were, yeah. There were, I, and it's not that there weren't films that I wanted to see at all. It's just there were no films that I wanted to see that I hadn't seen already. And so I ended up watching a garbage Western television show, which was sold to me because it a picture of Sam Elliott on the front with a giant mustache. Who's that kind of old guy with the mustache from that Hallmark one Hallmark show? Wasn't he the voice of Beef? It's what's for dinner for a long time, and you know that could be. He's he's you know he's the cowboy in the Big Lebowski. Like you know Sam Elliott's a cool yeah. dude. Oh, that's right, he is. That's right. So yeah, I uh-huh. saw his face, and well, I like him. He his face makes me think of eating steak. So I'll watch his television show, and it was <laughs> it was similarly nihilistic. It was this weird like I think what they were trying to do was it was like following a wagon train on the Oregon Trail. And the lesson of the film was basically everybody's dying. Everybody's going to die. And if you don't die, you're probably going to want to die. 
and it was just crushingly nihilistic. I really didn't get it. I, like, I, I don't understand why people make these shows. But it did leave well, me what's with, happening with... This is what's happening with prestige television right now, is, it, is that, you know, this is, an, this is the, the tail end of the prestige television era. I think we were for a while in a golden age of television. But now we're in an age where a lot of crap is being produced that aims to seem deep. And um, when it doesn't have anything to say, it feels perfectly comfortable just telling you to believe in nothing. Yeah, I... I, I, it did leave me with a question, this this rubbish Western television show, because the one the one point that it made over and over and over and over and over again ad nauseum was that basically there it's very, very easy to die on the Oregon Trail. Well, based upon my playing of the thing, that's true. One yeah, I mean, that. I was, uh, yeah. again, I, I had the same childhood experience in public libraries as you did with playing the Oregon Trail, and, you know, everybody does you die. You played Oregon Trail in England. I assume no, that you No, 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 I played it in Chicago uh, before I, I left. I played East, a little computer game called British East India Company or something. No, that's a completely <laughs> different. way worse. Completely different social dynamic than the Oregon Trail, but um, that's right. No, I played the Oregon Trail in in the public in my local public library, uh, as as most people of our generation did before I left Chicago. As a yeah, kid. Um, I never finished it. I mean, I finished the game frequently, oh, really? but I never finished oh. the trail. I never got to the end. I, you know, we oh, always really? do. Well, I. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, it's because I was a very bad planner for my wagon train. Oh, I don't I'm know about you, but that. I would just. Um, I, I would always make the mistake of assuming perpetual summer. You know, I'd load oh, up on ammo and just like, I'll shoot buffalo. It'll be fine. Travel light, travel fast. No problem. And then, you know, inevitably winter sets in and you're somewhere and there's just no, there's no food to be found. You know, Ed, the overwhelming hallmark of my childhood worldview was being inculcated with a, a, an evangelical missionary impulse. The stories which most formed me as a young person were the stories of um, of evangelical missionaries, contemporary and in the recent past around the world, who were proclaiming the gospel to those who had not heard it, and often at great personal peril, which is the closest that evangelicals have to saints. I was thinking about that recently, but those stories form my worldview, as did the sort of overwhelming sense of the of the importance, which is true, of the Great Commission that was conveyed to me in the evangelical church, which I grew up, in which I grew up. And so, I'll tell you something. I was responsible with my Oregon Trail folks because I was not sure that they knew the Lord and I did not want to be responsible for them dying before they had opportunity to hear the gospel. I created a little backstory for them whereby upon arriving at the end of the Oregon Trail, they would hear the gospel and I didn't want to be responsible for them not having heard it. Oh, so you played the Oregon Trail as a sort of omnipotent narrator. Yeah. You didn't You didn't self-identify? You didn't insert yourself in the story? Like when you didn't name the no, members I of your wagon trade, it wasn't no, like felt, me and then members of your family? You, you would no, just, I felt you would rather give them... that I was a shepherd of these people. But, oh, yeah. so you consider yourself like the trail boss? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, That's actually. Fascinating. I, I bet you that there is a real, like, oh, there's, a, yeah. there's a personality difference at work here. Like, the first name on my list was always my name. It's like, well, I'm. I'm in the, like, that's where, you know, I'm the one in the way, like, you know, me and my family, that's what we're, and for you, it was an impersonal, you're responsible for these people and you're, you're the, tr you're the wagon train boss or captain or whatever. That's fascinating. This is why you're editor in chief. That's, um, you, know. you know, the first time I'll tell you this, I'll tell you this. The first time I saw Pulp Fiction, you know, the monologue in the diner at the end of Pulp Fiction where uh, Jules is talking to uh, Ringo and, and, uh, and, and Pumpkin about, uh, honey bunny his the heart the honey honey bunny about the hard day that he's having yeah you know at the end of that he says i'm trying ringo i'm trying real hard to be the shepherd yeah i'm trying to be the good man yeah yeah right i don't know what tarantino was trying to do there but i felt that <laughs> well that, <laughs> that whole film as a young person i felt that 
Well, well, it's yeah, obvious what important. Tarantino was trying to do. I mean, that was a great film. Um, and yeah. it's actually the only, I don't want to say the only film, that's unfair. It's the only film of Tarantino's that comes to mind, apart from maybe Jackie Brown, um, that Tarantino doesn't exhibit his usual problem, which is he's a great writer, but doesn't know how to end a plot. Uh, he says everyone shoot each other in the end. And Pulp Fiction. Well, that's the problem is that Pulp Fiction has a phenomenal ending, right? I mean, and it's yeah, but it's because he does it out of narrative order, and it's all interspersed and cut and flashback and everything. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is great, great. But no, what Tarantino's doing? I mean, the whole film, as far as I can tell, is about the insane consequences of innocuous or seemingly random choices. Yeah, like to go back and get your watch or not to go back and get your watch. To go into this store and not that store. To you know, eat in this diner or not in that diner. That you know, the whole movie is driven by. Oh, if I only hadn't done that, or what if he had done that? And so that final scene is all about Samuel L. Jackson making a choice. Which is interesting because, um, like, Kill Bill, for example, is about the wages of sin, it yes. seems to me. <laughs> Laid bare well, across the global I, stage. But the wages no, think... of sin are not always paid even by the sinner, right? But that everyone who everyone who's harmed in... in in Kill Bill, there's a there. Can, it, what happens to them can be attributed to the particular sins of particular individuals. Yes, I, I'd say Kill Bill is more particularly about vendetta. It's about the settling of the score in a sort of I would say in a kind of cosmic sense. Yes, it's not vendetta. Just, probably it's speak- not just that Uma Thurman has a vendetta. It's that there's a sort of cosmic justice. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Whether you think that's a just justice or not, I think well, that's what's happening justice, there. But yeah. No, it's not, it's not a just justice, but I was just trying to give people the chance to have their own opinion about the damn thing. No, it's our show. Other people's opinions don't matter here. This is about you and me. <laughs> Kill Bill was okay. an okay film. Kill Bill Part yeah. 1 was an okay film. Not you as know, I think I think some of this, like the, um, some of the fight scenes are fantastic. I mean, some of the... the uh, yeah, anyone who doesn't walk away from that film kind of sneakily wanting to have a samurai sword in, a, in their golf club bag is <laughs> right, they're kidding exactly. themselves I mean, or fight someone with a mace if they if you're gonna have a samurai sword you want to fight somebody who's got a mace you know right yeah exactly yeah uh-huh. okay looping um, back to looping back full circle to westerns the hateful eight i was one of the last i films really thought I we were going to loop back to the great catholic conversation element oh of sure show, probably right? no, i'd rather a... go back to westerns i have not seen the hateful eight uh don't give it a miss because it's it, the hateful eight is the perfect encapsulation of the Tarantino problem, which is phenomenal cast, interesting characters, great dialogue, terrific writing. And then you get to the last 15 minutes. And it's like, I don't know what to do. So everyone's just going to shoot each other. And it's, it's such a letdown every mm. time he needs mm. a Quentin Tarantino is a fabulous starting pitcher and he can, yeah, he can he take it deep into the seventh, but he needs a closer. He needs yeah, really, I, I hateful eight needed a bridge man too. Um, he was all heat in the first five innings and then it just all collapsed. Anyway, that'll happen. Actually, I have long aspirations. You probably know this about me, but I have long aspirations, uh, to, to write fiction. I would love to know how to write fiction, but the reason I have given up every time I've tried is because I, I don't know how to land anything. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my problem is this is the Oregon trail all over again. My problem is I can't conceive of a story that I, that I am not the protagonist of. (laughs) Or at least some projection of music. And then I just think, well, everything I do or want to do is boring. And who, no one's to read that. If you are uh, if you are some sort of um, psychoanalyst with a Christian anthropology listening to this episode of the Pillar Podcast, we would be perfectly happy, grateful even, to uh, to receive your assessment of our own sort of psycho- psychological profiles based upon um, these these revelations which you have now received. I, got a, I, I received an email this week, J.D., from a publisher. Mm-hmm. Who? Um, oh, me too. I wonder if the same one. We didn't talk about this. Probably. This is, was he, asking I, if you want to write a book. Yeah, 
And I got an email like that too from a publisher. Yeah, and I, I, I answered very politely and with you know deep expressions of flattery. Thank you, but no, I don't. There's no book that I want to write. Thank you. Uh, there's no book that I would write that anyone would want to read. And what I didn't write, but is also true. And it would take a lot of work and not make me any money. So no, thank you. I, I have been um, asked a number. Maybe of I times. should pitch them the no- Maybe I should pitch them a novel about me. <laughs> a novelization of my I will write you a Dan Brown novel in which I am doing Vatican finances and just see if they bite. That would be funny. I, I, I have been very honored. I, I have been as you have been too, and I'm like deeply humbled by this that in the time that we've been doing the pillar and maybe a little bit before, people who knew of our work in the church had reached out to me, who worked in publishing and reached out to me to ask me about the notion of writing a book. And I'm like, I'm, I've been deeply flattered by that, but I have responded the same way every time, which is like, I revere books. Like I, I can't imagine anything worse than writing a bad book. And the fact of the matter is I don't know that I have anything book length or book worthy um, to say. Now, I have thought, could Ed and I do a book together kind of like on the Vatican finance stuff in which we took all of our reporting and stitched it together and turned it into a narrative? It would be a lot, a book like that, a really well-researched book about a historical period in the life of the church would be extremely time-consuming. We'd almost have to get, I don't even know what, what we'd do because we couldn't, I don't know how we could do that, the pillar, and have children and wives at the same time. Um, we would also get sued. We would also probably get sued. A lot. I thought, I have thought, could we take, could we do, could we write, look, we were, do, we were at the heart of doing reporting in 2018 and following about the, you know, we, I think we have a certain set of understanding about us as East Lex Mundi and ecclesiastical reform. I've thought, could we write a book about that? We could. The problem is I don't, one, the same thing. I really don't know how we would achieve it. I mean, we work a lot at the pillar. Um, and two, I, I don't, I don't know how it ends, right? I mean, I don't know how the book ends, which maybe is fine, but it seems to me to be, to pose certain difficulties. Yes, I think that's right. There are a number of people who I would like to interview in depth, really, really in depth, who I'd love to get permission to sit with for hours and hours and hours and hours and write a kind of Ratzinger Report type book about their lives. I've approached some of them about it and they have been, I think, too modest or humble or self-effacing to think that that anyone would want to know what they have to say up to that amount. But I think books like that can be really helpful because they, if you look at someone who has done great and good things and then you... um, understand what their perspective is and what their what their sort of modus vivendi is i think that can be very useful in the life of the church but anyway those i've approached have not been games so that and that's the only kind of book that i really feel i'm good at asking questions i guess but you know um those, on the other hand people do write a lot of bad books JD. but i would not want to write a bad book right i know but i'm saying you could write a mediocre book and it would be received as <laughs> I don't a great think I, could. I don't think i could anyway that's not what we're here to talk about we are here to talk about um I don't know. Actually, we're here to talk about what we like to talk about. This is our show. But what I want to talk about a little bit is you are in London and I um, tomorrow, we're recording this show on Thursday, January 19th. I tomorrow have to go um, to California for an obligation that I have that I've had for quite some time and was unable to change. And that means that to my great regret, the pillar will not be on the ground to cover the March for Life. I really, I have, a, I, I very honestly have, have regret about that because uh, one, I love the March for Life. I love being at the March for Life. I love so many things about what happens at the March for Life. I really like going to the March for Life. And two, the March for Life is, I think, a keystone event in the life of the church in the United States. And I think if one really wants to understand a lot about the church in the United States, um, uh, one could do far far worse than being present at the, at the March for Life and observing sort of various things kind of coming into, into engagement with one another. So lamentably, we won't be at the March for Life. And I'm 
and I real I'm genuinely sort of uh, I feel like it's it's on me. I I wasn't able to plan well. We didn't have a freelancer who was able to do it. Our some of our other staff were just not able to do it, and so we won't be at the March for Life. But I have a lot of regret about that. And listeners, I hope you'll forgive me for that because while we'll do some writing about and coverage of things connected to the March for Life, and are actually kind of working on that even now, I regret that we won't be there. And I I to me, Ed, it feels like I kind of let the team down by not making it happen. Uh, I don't know that you need to take it personally, but it is a shame that we, Qua the Pillar, um, aren't going to be there live, which it is a shame. And I, I actually, I, I think, um, so I've, have having lived in D.C. for a number of years, I've obviously been to the March for Life a number of times, and um, I haven't always found it to be a riveting event. Uh, you know, it's always an important event and it's good that people turn out and it's great and you get to meet nice and interesting oh, people. Oh, like the speakers the being a riveting event? Yeah, but also just, you know, there there was the law, you know, for exactly all the reasons why it was so important for so many years that the march continued to happen, even when you felt like nothing was giving, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, Roe v. Wade is gone. And I think it shows, uh, it's a testament to the staying power necessary if you want to really move the ball on something like abortion, that it's a generational thing. And I think um, the March for Life this year to an extent last year as well. But right now, this period in the pro-life movement in the United States is fascinating because it is a generational change that the focus of the energy, the focus of the the sort of public policy aims is suddenly shifted. That for a long time, it was, it was all about, we need to get rid of this Supreme Court precedent in Roe v. Wade, which, you know, we, we don't need to dissect why it was not only unnatural, but also bad law and things like that. But that's gone now. So, you know, it, the March for Life is no less necessary. It's no less important. It's no less, I, I think, going to be a, an enduring feature of um, our, our sort of national calendar. But what the people who are going there are going there for, what they're bearing witness to, what they're hoping to drive change in, um, that that's all beginning to take shape in different ways. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I I do too. I have um I have always thought I, I want to talk about that because I want to talk about kind of what it what where the march might go and where I think it won't go. But you know I've always thought that the and and probably this is not profound again. I don't, I'm not a book writer, but I, um I, I've always thought that while the motif of the march for life is political, in other words, the thing is there because we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade and these kinds of things, and now the thing is there because we're going to address the prospect of of Congress uh, codifying um, legal protections for abortion to federal law and these kinds of things. I've always thought that while the um, motif and the sort of uh, stated and uh, aims are political, uh, policy political, the fruit of the March for Life and the important part of it is the um, the formational and solidarity exercise which it becomes. Um, I, I I think about going to the March for Life as a young person. As I mean, not not going to the March for Life until being a college student, but having gone to the March for Life as a college student and then um, going to the March for Life with groups of young people subsequent to that and, and seeing the way in which for myself and for other people, the March for Life is um, most, I think, impactful in the long run in the way in which it presents to young people who return to other places to do all kinds of apostolic life and service to the gospel, all kinds of apostolic work and service to the gospel of life. All these people care about this thing. You know, it is not unusual. If you're from... Um, I spent a couple of years living in Nebraska, and I can say if you live in Nebraska, it's not unusual to be pro-life. But if you, uh, you know, many people in, are pro-life, and if you said that in public school, many people would affirm that as well, these kinds of things. But if you come from, if you grow up on 
the East Coast as I did, or if you live in Colorado where I do, you can be in very many spaces where the presumption of uh, the sort of overwhelming presumption is that all people would be pro-choice, that that's the only rational position, and kind of coinciding with that, the overwhelming presumption is that all that most people have uh, a secular or a religious worldview, right? And so, if you grow up in a context like that, it can be, um, I think, surprising and buoying and edifying to say, oh wow, to see, oh wow, here are all these people who have this um, similar disposition. To to me with regard to, to abortion, and I'm not alone on that and those kinds of things. And the encouragement that comes, I think, both from the dais and from that experience of like um, this sort of encouragement of John Paul II, you know, you know, woe to you, um, young people, America needs you to proclaim the gospel of life from the highways and the byways. And, um, you know, woe, woe to you, America, if you don't defend life. And, and um, young people, the gospel of life needs you to recognize and affirm the dignity of every human person. Those, the reinforcement of that in the context of the March for Life, I suspect is helpful for many people in um, a vocational discernment, which is not to say sort of necessarily discernment of um, vocation with a capital V, as we talk about it in the church, I think sometimes wrongly, but um, apostolic discernment. What is the, what is, what are the things which are the mission of my life and what are the things in which my life can have a mission which serves the gospel of life and those kinds of things. And I think that's really important. I think the March for Life has had ups and downs in many ways. It has, it has um, at times made the sort of March for Life, I think at times has made surprising steps or missteps by the judgment of a lot of people. There have been, there, you know, there, there's no shortage of controversy about the March for Life and no shortage of people who will criticize it. But I think at its heart, this idea of the March for Life as a gathering of people who are um, there to say, we think that um, abortion is wrong and that we ought to be doing something about it is, a, is, a, is an important thing that's impactful for a lot of people. But also it's an important public witness, not yeah, just in it. the sort Thank of you. anonymity yeah. of the huge crowd, but also for many of the people, for example, in Washington. Uh, Washington is definitely a place where, you know, if you take the sort of um, partisan and lobbying industries out of the equation, uh, it's not an area that has what I would call a lot of viewpoint diversity baked into it on um, on issues of life that it te- it tends to lean culturally pretty pretty secular pretty left um, pretty pro-choice and huge crowds of people arriving who give the lie to the sort of caricature of people who are pro-life as sort of swivel-eyed spittle-flecked lunatics from you know fresh out of a cornfield who you know just want to you know put women barefoot in the kitchen or something like that, having joyful families arrive, having happy young people, having intelligent, articulate, normal people wandering the streets of DC en masse for the March for Life and giving a happy witness of not just life, but also in positive engagement with the people that they meet is I think a very, very important thing. And it's very good that it happens every year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you are listening. I was listening. Were you? Oh, your Why eyes are moving I, back and forth. I thought you were reading something. I was getting a text from a source about a story that I'm working on, but no, I, no, so I, was I, I wasn't criticizing you for not listening. I was actually disappointed because I was like, shoot, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. And I'm looking no, forward to No, you were JD's making total rapping. sense, and I agree with you. I, I'm so sorry. I got a text from a source about a story that I'm no, working on. No, I, I honestly, no, JD, this is my insecurity, not yours. This is, this is, this is about me waiting for you to say, yeah, that's absolutely right. Like, oh, good, that did make sense. And instead, you kind of gave a. Stuck, yeah, I think that's where it's like, oh, shit. Take two. Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> Say more, please, if you would. No, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I just really like what you're saying here, and I'd be grateful if you'd say a little more about it. Bravo. Well played. 
I was listening. I got a text. I usually turn off my phone, but I'm working on a couple of stories right now that I really need to be in touch with some people, and we had made an agreement about that, but I apologize. This is absolute fodder for a therapist. Oh, my. This whole yeah, episode. No, I'm sorry. I do not want to compound your insecurities. Ed, I always like what if you have to say. If there is a Catholic marriage counselor listening, <sighs> we would be delighted to hear well, your it's my take fault. I mean, it's it. my fault. My attention was divided. and my Honey, we only do this for an hour a week. All I ask for is a little bit my of focus. My attention was divided because I, I was working. And, and, you know, I have to put food on our table and the, those things. But Oh, I what screwed. I do isn't work? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Um, or am I a job? Is that what there, this is? Oh, wow. I've never... Mm, boy, that's harsh. Um, no. Uh, your joy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have to stop because this is going to get weird very quickly. Okay. Yeah. Um, I agree that the public witness is critically important and of tremendous value. And I'm really glad that you raised that because I didn't raise it. And I'm really, really glad that you did raise it. And I think that that's, I think that that's really important and really beautiful. And, you know... Um, one can't help but think, like, of course, of, like, the ways in which the public witness – so there are two ways in which the public witness has had, has had, in the eyes of a lot of people, setbacks over the past couple of years. One, the March for Life was criticized tremendously when um, uh, President Trump appeared and when it seemed to be in the lead-up to the 2020 election. There were people who, who said that the March for Life took on an overtly uh, political or partisan or electoral tone even ahead of that. And I, I don't know that I have enough facts in front of me to assess – was that definitively true? Because I know that there were Democrats who spoke and Katrina Jackson, the Democratic lawmaker from Louisiana and Governor Edwards and these kinds of things who are pro-life. But, um, you know, the March for Life has been criticized that Trump um, came. I am not a Trump apologist. I think anybody who listens to this show and has heard me talk about politics knows that I'm not a Trump apologist. But I also know that the president of the United States wants to come to your pro-life thing. I think that that's significant in and of itself. And I don't, you know, I think... You don't tend, they was, tend to say no to the president. Right, yeah. and the criticism I, I didn't that, like I the way that was, there was the universal use of the term the most pro-life president in history, right, which I, I mean, was that, debatable at best. Oh, yeah, that notion of the most pro-life president ever is a, is a, is a different thing, right? And, and to the extent that if the March for Life was endorsing that... You know, no, that I don't think beyond, the March for Life I, right. was officially endorsing that. Well, March I mean, for Life be, was endorsing that, but that certainly is the rhetoric, and it's not... You know, I mean... It is true, we've talked about this before, it is true that the Trump administration appointed the Supreme Court justices who led to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and that can't be ignored. It is also true that since then, you know, um, even recently, Trump's own pers- personal perspectives on abortion have become manifest, and that whatever else can be said, it seems apparent, most of all, that the pro-life movement had um, a transactional relationship with Donald Trump. And um, in the in the first reign of de- tenure of Donald Trump as president, there was a payoff, a the desire to see Roe versus Wade overturned was manifested. Um, but uh, yeah, it's true that in the context of that transactional relationship, there were also a lot of excesses. But I think that also at the same time, a lot of the sort of um, pearl clutching about the fact that Trump came to the March for Life was um, opportunistic and an opportunity, I think, to um, for some people to sort of t- take it as confirmation of their long-standing criticism of the March for Life or even for existing because it's not the kind of thing that they would go to or those kinds of things. So I think a lot of it was overblown and, and, and taken I think in other ways. True. And then, of course, the other thing, you know, that w- w- sort of 
brought put the March for Life on on a, on a very large national stage, gave it the kind of media cover. People every year say the March for Life doesn't get enough media coverage. The March for Life doesn't get enough media coverage. And now, gosh, here I am, a member of the media who won't be there, and so I really feel terrible about that. But you know, you are the problem, this, JD Flynn. The, the, I mean, I, in this case, yes, I am the problem, and I feel really badly about it. But I couldn't get out of this other thing. But um, the thing which gave the March for Life a lot of media coverage just a couple of years ago was the Sandman. Oh, saga yeah, that and um and that was really interesting because it was you know this kid the viral video floated of this kid kind of sneering at this guy as he played his drum and it was sort of the and the kid had a maga hat on and it, the initial sort of take was um here's this kid and he's sneering at people for being native american and doing their thing and he's being snobbish and this is the march for life and it's you know and it turned out he was and these actually and smiling very awkwardly was, while someone got in his face yeah and, it turned out that the thing was much 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 more complicated than that the guy had gotten in his face the guy was it you you were the one to break this you broke the news we were we were working as journalists then as we do now nathan phillips I believe you broke name. the news that nathan phillips the man who was playing the drum had prior to the march attempted to kind of gain access in a demonstration at the national basilica of the shrine of the immaculate conception of the virgin mary the mother of god in washington dc is that right uh yes i did break the story you did break that story you went over and talked with some security guards and found that there that nathan phillips had had this prior effort to was that right to kind of go and have a demonstration i'm I'm unsure where exactly in the weekend it fell but yes it basically there was a i think it was the vigil for life at the basilica the night before and uh, a group of people had attempted to to get in there and disrupt disrupt the vigil and everything and uh, and yeah we um we did we did break that story back in the day so it was a very complicated weekend and a very complicated series of events and you're absolutely right that um i, I don't it, it did generate a lot of publicity for the march <laughs> for life um i'm not sure all of it was helpful but i mean again it that i mean okay put it this way if as you were just saying um, the president of the United States as a partisan and polarizing figure like Donald Trump coming to the march can create sort of um, pros and cons, shall we say, in, in the media coverage. That was a perfect example of, you know, it's just some kid in a hat. Right. And, you know, you talk about things that are outside of the event or the organizer's control. Right, exactly. My goodness. Yeah, that's exactly. And it was just some kid in a hat who it turns out was not the um, protagonist of that story. No, he wasn't the protagonist of the story, um, but he was just—he was initially framed. It was just a no, but it was the, just a picture of a kid in a hat was all it took. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, you know, one thing that I have heard since the um, Dobbs ruling um, is, uh, well, now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, um, the March for Life can and should become a much broader event which embraces the whole of the gospel of life. And I would like to say that I embrace, I hope, the whole of the gospel of life and um, and think that it has broad implications, economic, systemic, cultural, and legal and political. And that as Catholics, one of the profound difficulties for us, of try, if we try very hard to have active participation in this particular federal system of political organization, um, you know, we will find that... Um, it is very, very difficult to find very many allies who are consistently approaching the gospel of life in the way that the church is and that those who are have very little political power. But I have heard many people say, um, well, you know, since Dobbs has been overturned, it's an opportunity for the March for Life to embrace itself a much broader um, and and more consistent ethic of life so that the March for Life becomes an event in which people are talking about the death penalty and talking about just wages and talking uh, about many other issues which are not abortion. I don't think that will happen, Ed, because the March for Life is not a, is not 
um, an event of Catholics, but a coalition effectively of Catholics and evangelicals and, um, and them, others. And others, but by no, no means but, an exclusively Christian it's event. By no means an exclusively Christian event, but let's say that it is predominantly a coalition of Catholics and evangelicals. And there are two problems. One, I think, sort of um, as a class, evangelicals, you know, would not sort of theologically, most evangelicals would not theologically be aligned with us on the sort of moral implications of the gospel of life with regard to other policy issues, among them the death penalty and things like that, although there is a growing number who are. And then the fact of the matter is there are Catholics who, um, a hold to the church's teaching on abortion, on the moral requisite of the illegality of abortion, but who uh, do not hold Catholic positions or uh, on, on other issues. And, there, and then there are a number of other issues which are matters of prudential judgment, where Catholics can have legitimate disagreement about what it means to have policy related to a, a just wage or um, a family wage or these kinds of things. I mean, there are certain things which in which things are manifestly clear, even things which are matters of prudential judgment, I think. Um, Evangelium Vitae laid out very clear criteria for um, the plausibility of the death penalty in the developed West, and Francis has certainly uh, affirmed that, if not um, if not more. And uh, and therefore, there are certain things which I think should be clear for Catholics, but there's not unicity among uh, Catholics who are opposed to abortion on that. And then um, there are other matters which are prudential judgment. So I don't think that the coalition, which is the March for Life, would be in a position to broaden its uh, its advocacy on issues which we might call life issues, but I also don't think that it's what it's for. And when I hear people sort of say the March for Life, you know, can now broaden its thing, I, I, it seems to me that it's perfectly reasonable to say this is an anti-abortion event. We're having an anti-abortion event related to public policy, once related to judicial decisions, now related to public policy, legislative issues, and administrative policy issues, and um, related to state-level issues and these kinds of things. And this event is about our opposition to abortion and our desire to see both um, cultural and legal political change to uh, to affect um, a diminishment of the number of abortions and a reduction in the places where abortion is protected legally. That seems to me to be a perfectly reasonable thing. It does not seem to me that every event has to be an event for all things, right? I would agree. I, I also believe whenever I – and this isn't to say it's universal, but it, it has been my experience that when I see that criticism or that suggestion – being made about the future of the March for Life, I do not get the sense it's being made in terribly good faith. That might be um, so. I don't know. I usually see it being made by people who do or would attend or champion events that would be single issue events on other issues. Single issue events on other issues. And I don't see them chiming and going, well, yes, this, but really we should be talking about abortion here too. You know, in fact, right. they seem to be the sort of people like everything doesn't have to be about abortion. You know, it's all right to talk about things and not talk about abortion. So yeah, I, I don't go in for that whole sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with saying abortion is a grave moral evil and it should be eradicated. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having a dedicated public event or movement to the eradication of a grave moral evil from our legal and public life. I, that seems to me to be perfectly reasonable. I mean, no, I don't think the pro-life movement more widely and people who use the pro-life uh, mantle should be deaf to or inarticulate about uh, other life issues. I think it is important that if you're going to be a witness to life, you should be a consistent witness to life. I do think that's important, but yeah, I, you know, to make the march for life about, for example, say, well, we're we're going to give equal billing to the death penalty this year. It's like, look, I would like to see the death penalty fall from use in the United States entirely as well. I I would. That's not what we're there for. 
Right. If you want to have a rally to end the death penalty of the United States in Washington, D.C., send me the dates. I'll turn up. I'm amazed that you said that because you don't like going to rallies of any kind. And I have it, no doubt that someone – I'd be at a you. distance. I wouldn't be <laughs> like in the thick of things. it. You don't like going to things. I hate going to things, J.D. It's like my least favorite <laughs> thing in the world. But I would be at a distance. Like I would find the version of the colonnade at St. Peter's where I could watch the event from a distance and and affirm it. From a distance, in the same way that I I prayed with and 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 affirmed the prayers of all those gathered in St. Peter's Square for the funeral of Benedict XVI, so I would also, uh, from a from a respectful and comfortable distance, preferably height, uh, also affirm any large crowd that chooses to gather in D.C. for um, for ending the death penalty or any other worthy pro life issue. I think that is that is fine and worthy and good, and we should do it. I I wonder though. Because it will have to change. The march will change. It is changing. I mean, we had, you know, there isn't the Mass for Life, the youth rally and Mass for Life at the, whatever we're calling the Verizon Center. Although I think that was, I think that was a COVID um, thing, no? Or no, it was a a kind of a January 6th thing, right? Because security had very many DC things has increased. What I heard from my sources was that there was an issue with the prospect of young people bringing in bags that would make the thing very difficult to do. Yeah, well, and I I actually, I, I don't know if we reported on this or if I simply wrote a lot about it in my newsletter one week, but we somehow or other we put this story out there um that yeah it wasn't that for example the archdiocese of washington dc which is always Said like well, we don't need sport. it anymore right yeah we don't need this forget it mm-hmm. no the, what we heard was that the the cost and the logistics of continuing to use the center were, were rising precipitously in a post-covid post-january 6th world um they were as you say they were they were talking about absolutely inflexible security arrangements like you can't bring bags in which you know if you've got thousands of teenagers getting off of buses having driven through the night sometimes over several days like that ain't an option um stuff like that but also part of it was uh and the cost was going to be harder and harder to meet because there were there are dioceses that have dropped out of sponsoring or or officially sending uh people to the march for life this year and it's not because they don't think it matters anymore it's that they said we're, we're sending our people and our buses and our delegations and our money to the state capitals and we're doing that because that's where the fight is right now for us and that's where you know that's where we need to bring our witness and you know I, that's reasonable i understand that um but again it's you know if the if roe v wade is gone it has sort of it hasn't let the air out of the balloon of the you know the urgency of the pro-life movement but it has sort of you know punched a hole in the middle of you know what it is we all used to focus on and, and rally around and and i think whether it's a question of efforts becoming more diffused across the country and you know again moving things to the state level which we always said by the way um you know when when we were talking about the potential end for roe v wade everyone always agreed you know that the end of roe v wade is not the end the end of roe v wade is just the beginning of a new phase and it's going to you know be fought at the state level and everything so i think there is going to be necessarily that sort of logistical shift and shift in emphasis away from the district of columbia as the center of the the universe to you know all the other places in the country some of which have made enormous strides in protecting unborn life since the collapse of roe v wade and some have gone hard in the other direction and and i think that's all well and good and important but how how that sort of shakes out i think is going to be very interesting to see because i i think there will be people waiting um, and hoping to be able to run an era of like, ah, oh, the March for Life is, you know, it's over. You know, the, the, right. the, the crowd wasn't, you know, nobody in past years, I don't think you could get mainstream secular media to report on crowd sizes, the March for Life. I think you're going to see a lot of coverage of the crowd mm-hmm. size this year. Mm-hmm. And they're all going to say, yeah. oh, it's down, Much, it's down, way down. Nope. Much down, way right. down. Mm-hmm. nobody's showing up this year. Um, I, I think you will get a lot of that. 
but uh, again, that just that shows again the cultural urgency of the witness. You know, we're talking about the, the the needed witness of a huge crowd of people gathering to say, "No, this is what we believe, and we're not angry lunatics. We're we're people who love our neighbor, and that's an important thing." One thing, one thing that the um, that the crowd estimate thing won't account for on a pragmatic level is the fact that it has been the case since the March for Life was initially launched um, in D.C. that. The Catholic conferences or pro, or pro life organizations or whatever in many many states have begun organizing statewide marches uh, for life, and I think it was the case in a lot of places. Like I know of a lot of dioceses that would run, bu- you know, buses to the National March for Life from all over the country. It's amazing how long people spend on a bus to go to the March for Life. I mean, really a long time. But um, but I do know from talking with people who work in dioceses across the country that a lot of dioceses now are planning that they'll go to the March for Life this year in D.C. But then subsequent to that, they'll put a much bigger push and emphasis on bringing the high school kids who would they would have taken to the March for Life in D.C. to the statewide March for Life and making that a bigger thing. And from a political perspective, I think that actually makes sense because the, the fights now over legal protection for abortion are predominantly fights um, at the state level. And obviously, one can make um, much more of an impact on the decision of a state legislature by bringing to bear a crowd of people with expectations than one can of the federal legislature or certainly the federal bench. Except in Illinois, there you require suitcases of cash. (laughs) That's right. That's or the secretary of state for that matter. Hey, Oh, um, uh, I, I told you we were talking about Vatican finances today. Now we've done it. Um, (laughs) that what that was. That's what that was. Um, but the question would be whether or not that will gain attention or or not, I guess. What if, and, and I don't know, and I haven't, I have an email. I just had this idea, so it's not like I've emailed the the organizers of the March for Life this idea and have them say we already considered that it's a stupid idea and here's why. But since no one has yet told me why it's a stupid idea, thinking out loud, what if the March for Life like went on the road, hmm. like said, okay, this year we're doing it in D.C., but Roe v. Wade's over, so next year we're doing it in Boston because you hmm. know Massachusetts has terrible, insane, permissive. And we're going to bring to bear the sort of whole of the yeah a whole yeah. national spotlight's going to Boston. The next year it's going to go to Albany. And, Hmm. you know, because New York has, you know, abortion rules that would shame North Korea, which is factually accurate. Um, You know, what what if what if they did that? That would be interesting. That would be really interesting. Yeah, that'd be cool. I don't know what happened, but that would be really interesting. I would be fascinated by that. Ditto. If anyone if anyone who organizes the March for Life is listening, you can have that idea. You can have that idea. It's all yours. Yeah. I mean, we would love it if you had attributed to the pillar. But if you're not, if you don't, you You don't have to. I mean, you know, that's fine. Well, Ed, we'll see if that idea happens. I think it's a good one. Um, there were some other things that we wanted to talk about, but I just don't think that it's going to happen. Um, it seems unlikely. We wasted too much time talking about the Oregon Trail and the films of Quentin Tarantino. So I, wonder, But that was an important I, conversation. It was an important conversation. It was actually a deeply Catholic conversation, I think. So I wonder, Ed, if you – it was a great Catholic conversation. I wonder, Ed, if you would like to um, – say something about something which you've been paying a little bit of attention to while you were in England, namely these laws about praying at abortion clinics in England. What is the deal with that? Uh, well, so that you, you've often seen in the last couple of months, um, you see viral videos on the, on the Twitters and so on that, that seem to show people standing on their own outside of abortion clinics, uh, be, be approached by police officers and, 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 and questioned about whether or not they're silently praying. And uh, if the if the officers become satisfied that they they have in fact been silently praying that they they arrest them or find them and move them on, and and this is this generates a lot of uh, attention and, and uh, people rightly say that this is outrageous if people are in fact being arrested and fined for praying 
in public. And, you know, it's one of those things where it seems like one of those stories where you should say, well, it's the truth is more complicated and it's not as simple as it, but actually it kind of is. There has been in the UK for a long time, including from when I lived here and worked in politics, that, you know, the, there is no pro-life movement of uh, analogous size or scope or influence as there has been in the United States for decades. Um, you know, the, there is, there are, don't be right. There's, you know, there are, there are right to life organizations in the United Kingdom and they do excellent work and they do heroes work and they are very good people, but they are a tiny, tiny minority and are usually um, given short shrift culturally. And, you know, if you are pro-life in the UK and publicly, so you are, you're pretty much considered a crank um, at, or, you know, a religious extremist or, you know, a loony of one stripe or another. So they really do um, heroes work in that regard. And very often, um, it used to be that there would be um, what what were portrayed as protests outside of abortion clinics in the United Kingdom, but usually this would involve five or six people uh, praying the rosary. They would have signage saying, pray to end abortion, we're here to help, that sort of thing. Uh, occasionally, and I this is anecdotal on my part, but you know, I've been to some of these and I'd, I'd walked past. Uh, others in different parts of London that, I, that where they happen to be going on, and sometimes you would get people who'd have you know the pictures of aborted children, um, you know, children who had been aborted and stuff like that uh, on display. But I mean, universally, these were not you know aggressive, sort of chanting, angry, whatever. These were almost, at least in my experience, uh, muted or silent, prayerful, not so much protests as um, outreach and witness demonstrations but of course um that was considered to be bad and you can't have that and so um i think it was ealing was the first one the the council of ealing the local governing council in ealing was the first to apply a public spaces protection order around an abortion clinic and said basically we're going to ban protests and counter protests of course uh from the area outside of and around and leading up to this abortion clinic no one can congregate there no one can hold signs no one can shout slogans um, you know, you cannot, you cannot do that there. And if you do, you, you're basically in breach of the peace and you can be arrested. You can be fined. I think it's up to a thousand pounds and things like that. And then, um, this was challenged. It went to the high court. Um, it didn't go all the way to the Supreme court, I don't think, but it went to the high court and basically was upheld that they could do this, you know, subject to certain quote unquote strict tests about it being necessary and with two safeguards for public freedoms and, and things like that. And everyone said, well, this this upholding is not going to lead to anything good and and other places have brought it in um there's one uh i think birmingham and bournemouth are the two cities that have brought in similar pspos to to surround and protect abortion clinics and those are the places where people have been it seems arrested or fined or otherwise moved on by the police for silently praying on their own and that is because those local councils wrote into the orders um, under the definition of prohibited activities in the area, under protesting, it would say, and this explicitly includes prayer, that prayer is protest in within the bounds of the effectiveness of this order. And it's pretty gross. I mean, it's, it, it is very, very disheartening. Um, you know, as I often, as I often tell people, uh, the UK is not the US when it comes to civil liberties. It, it, it is not. Um, free speech does not exist over here in the way that it does in the United States. Uh, free press does not exist over here in the way it does in the United States. You know, one of the things that I found myself constantly having to remind people and explain to them about uh, in the context of Cardinal Pell's recent death was to remind them of the gag order that we had to work against. Um, and 
not so much work against as ignore, uh, that was issued by the court in Australia, and people couldn't get their heads around the idea that a major national figure could be on trial and it would be illegal to report on it. It's like, well, this is very normal in Commonwealth countries. You know, in the UK, court injunctions to prevent reporting on not just a court case, but on an individual, you know, can go to court and petition for a, a press gag order to say, I have a right to a private family life, and you have to stop the press from reporting this inconvenient truth about me or whatever. This is all very normal. Um, and it, I mean, it is a little dystopian, frankly. It, I, it makes me deeply, deeply uncomfortable. But it is a reality. And I mean, it just goes to show, you know, when we talk about things like the March for Life and, you know, say, is the March for Life's work done? And, you know, we talk about things like, no, the gathering of a huge crowd of smiling, happy, pro-life individuals and families uh, is an important witness. Like, this is this is the alternative, is a place where one person standing alone, praying quietly, can be arrested. Like, you know, you, you don't you don't flex the muscle. That's where it can. That's what it can wither away to. So, you know, go life. Well, what what is the prospect for some? Is there any prospect for a repeal of this this policy or any kind of change? No, it's it, there's no prospect. I mean, it's not a law per se. Right. It's not you know, it's not an act of parliament that prevents you from doing this. This is local council, so sort of city government, I guess, would be the the locus, the the sort of American analog of this. Pass these public space protection orders, and they're subject to certain legal criteria. One of which is, I think, they're they have a time limit of three or four years and they have to be reviewed every six months or something like that. And they are, you know, in, in principle subject to judicial review. You can appeal them if you think they're, they're unjust or whatever. Um, but they are equivalent of, they're the equivalent of restraining orders are effectively what they are. And, um, you know, the, the judicial precedent has been set. So I don't see that going away anytime soon. What you have to hope is that, I mean, this is what we always, you know, we always used to talk about ahead of Roe v. Wade is, you know, to a great extent, Legal reform is only possible if it's preceded by cultural reform. That law very rarely does the unthinkable out of the blue. You have to clear the groundwork for it. And I, I would hope that you know the best hope for for ending a situation like this in the UK lies in people developing a valuing for not just pro life witness, but you know, free speech generally. But that you know, again, that's the sort of thing that you have to. You have to exercise the muscle for it to become strong. So we'll see. Yeah, we will. Well, Ed, we aren't there, but let's um, pray for those who are right now uh, journeying to the March for Life and for those who are there. And uh, we are uh, we will um, look forward to, whether it's in Boston, Albany, Washington, D.C., or elsewhere, we will look forward, I think, to joining you at the March for Life uh, next year. Will we not, Ed? Uh, yes, definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner from the streets down in London, Ed Condon. Ed, I'd like to give you the last word in this episode. What do you want to say? i got nothing. It's, it's late over here. I'm going to the pub. <laughs> See you next week, everybody. Adios. Adios.